Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mizuko. Father Yi Ushil answered the phone call, never expecting to hear the life-altering words. Your son is here with me now. Please prepare 70 million won within two days. Over the course of 44 days, the kidnapper eluded capture multiple times while the family frantically searched for their son. Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Jiwon Edwards, Nico, Elijah Hancock, Anominom, Dr. Bob, Lumos, Emma Brown, and David Tafoya for your support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. Patrons vote on future episode topics and hear the episodes first and ad-free with early access. If you aren't able to support me on Patreon, I still appreciate you for listening. Thank you. Warning. Today's episode contains some audio from the kidnappers' calls. No graphic details are discussed, but listener discretion is advised. We are going back to January 29th, 1991, a day that began a 44-day heart-wrenching search for nine-year-old Yi young On that Tuesday afternoon in Apkujang, Seoul, the joyous, adorable third-grade boy was playing in the cold January snow at a playground outside of his apartment complex with some of his friends. The small playground featured metal jungle gym structures and a dirt floor. It was considered a safe space for children to play unsupervised away from their homes, and it was close enough to see from the high-rise apartments that Hyungo's family lived in. His father and stepmother were only a short distance away from him. At 5.20 p.m., it was starting to get dark and it was getting close to dinner time. Hyungo wanted to play outside longer, so he said he'd wait for his friends to eat dinner and return. As his friends left to return home, they noticed a man loitering in the area, but not particularly watching any of them, just standing around. Hyungo's family ate dinner closer to 7 p.m., so he had more time to play outside than his friends did. However, when one of his friends returned less than 15 minutes later, Hyungo had inexplicably vanished. Despite his closeness to the apartments, his neighbors, and his own parents, Hyungo disappeared without a trace, leaving no clues behind to solve the mystery of his sudden disappearance. When 7 o'clock came around, when Hyungo wasn't home for dinner, his father, Yi Ushin, went to call him to come home, but they didn't find anyone at the playground. After searching the neighborhood, checking at the friends' houses, and anxiously searching the entire area, they decided it was time to report it to the police. They reported Hyungo missing, and at 11.30 p.m., their home phone rang. The father and stepmother hoped that the police had some good news, but the voice on the other end of the receiver was calm, monotone, and respectful. He spoke using honorifics that indicated he was speaking to someone above him in status or age. They could have never guessed the horrors of what they would hear. I can only imagine the nauseating feeling in the pit of their stomachs as the man said, Hyungo is here with me now. Please prepare 70 million won within two days. Install a car phone in your car. I will contact you again in two days. Don't contact the police. Then the phone hung up. The words sound blunt, but were spoken calmly, directly, and with respectful language. Though this didn't lessen the horrific impact of these words. Hyungo is here with me now. 
The parents had no clue who was holding their child hostage, and they didn't know if their son was safe. The amount the man was asking for was also incredibly large. 70 million won in 1991 is equivalent to 270 million won today, which is near 205,000 US dollars. The next morning, Hyungo's stepmother, whose name we do not know, so we can refer to her as the pseudonym Sun Young. Well, Sung Young received a call, which the parents were hesitant again to answer the phone, but they were also desperate to answer. They wanted to hear something about their son. And to their relief, it was the police. The officer said, this is the Soto police station in Seoul. May I please speak with the officer that's at your house? Sun Young was confused by this call because of how suspicious it was to receive a call on their home line instead of the detective just calling the other detective himself. The Soto police were not the ones assisting the E family, but instead the family lived in Gangnam, so they were in Gangnam's police jurisdiction. There were many officers already at their home who were listening to the call already, and Sun Young was immediately signaled to not reveal any information. The detective listening in on the call immediately knew that this was the kidnapper and he was clever. So the officer signaled Sun Young to lie. The kidnapper was incredibly brazen to impersonate an officer to determine if the family contacted the police or not. This possibly meant that the kidnapper did not have eyes on the family's movements up until this point because police were at the home. Sun Young returned to the call and said, There are no policemen here. This is just an ordinary family's number. Did you happen to dial the wrong number? And the man hung up. Did he believe her lie? Or did this just confirm that the family was going to lie to him? The kidnapper kept his promise and called again on January 31st, 1991, exactly two days after the initial call. This time, he spoke to Hyungo's father, Ushul. In the call, the kidnapper told Ushul direct instructions. The instructions were to install a phone in his Hyundai Grandeur car and go to Gimpo International Airport with the 70 million won. At this time, cell phones were still relatively rare for regular people to have. Even if the E family was quite wealthy, cell phones at this time were bulky and inconvenient. Using a home phone and a car phone were more preferable. Ushil had the phone installed into his car that day and was very serious about obliging with all of the kidnapper's demands. That same morning, Ushil received the next call on his car phone. The audio for a lot of the phone calls were made publicly available after the conclusion of the case, and I found this audio one of the most interesting. The unsettling nature of the calls don't stem from just the words alone, but also from the eerie composure of the caller. If you just listen to the tone, it's possible to believe that it's a business call, not the negotiation for a child's life. We're going to listen to the first set of demands here. During this call between Yu Shil and the kidnapper, the man speaking first in a clear and monotonous voice says, Exactly 34 minutes have passed. After 40 minutes, open the back trunk of the car. Usho seeks clarification about the back trunk, and the kidnapper responds, Come to the domestic airport right now, Gimpo Airport's international area. Usho acknowledges this information with a simple I understand, and the call abruptly ends. Once Usho arrived at the international section of Gimpo Airport, he received another call. The instructions were clear. He needed to park his car in area 2 of the parking garage, turn off the car, leave the keys in the ignition, leave the money in the car, and leave the car unlocked. He also wanted him to turn the hazard lights on the car. Usho was then told to immediately walk to bus number 600 to ride it home. 
Gimpo International Airport in 1991 was the country's only international airport, which is situated just outside of Busan, often confused for being in Busan. Incheon's international airport wasn't added to the domestic airport until 2001, which many people now use as the main international airport for the country because of its proximity to Seoul. Because the kidnapper specified the international parking lot, the family believed that the kidnapper was going to flee the country with the money. There was no information about Hyungo's well-being or how he would be returned to the family. But perhaps he would take the money and leave Hyungo in the car. The police had their eyes on the car the entire evening, but nobody showed up after watching the vehicle for hours. Usho returned home and they waited and waited. Nobody came to get the money or even approached the car. Nobody suspicious was seen in the area either. But the only thing they had to go off of was that the man sounded like he was from Seoul or surrounding areas and was possibly mid-30s based off the sound of his voice and his vernacular use. I'll go into more detail later about the analysis of his voice. But after about three hours, Ushil and Sanyang get a call at home from the kidnapper, and what he says tells them that he's not happy. We can also listen to this call as well. In this call, the kidnapper begins abruptly by saying, Why aren't you keeping your promises? Ushil's shaky voice says, Who said that? The kidnapper states, I saw someone in the backseat of your car. Ushil is obviously confused and asks, What did you say? Knowing that there was nobody in the backseat of the car. The kidnapper then again asks, Someone was in your back seat. They're not for Hyungo, are they? Ushil, in a panic now, demands, What happened to Hyungo? Is Hyungo alive? The kidnapper ends with a simple threat. You want Hyungo to die, don't you? And the call ends. That unfeeling voice sounded slightly annoyed, but there was no anger or yelling. The kidnapper seemed to at least have control over his emotions, if he had any. The moments waiting for the next call to come must have felt like an eternity. No answers were given and the parents were at a loss. Now it felt like the kidnapper was watching their every move. Did he know what their plans were all along? Because there was someone in the car with Ushil. But they weren't in the backseat like the kidnapper specified. Hoping to catch the kidnapper in the act, a detective was hiding within the trunk of the car. The detective's plan was to emerge from the trunk and apprehend the criminal once the ransom was handed over or the car was taken. But was their plan seen through? It was unclear because the kidnapper clearly used the word for backseat, which can't be confused for the word trunk. Maybe he misspoke or wanted to confuse them, although the police believed the family was under surveillance, so the detective hid in the trunk in a closed car garage. If the kidnapper was indeed aware or had guessed their plan, he truly was more cunning than they thought. Approximately three hours after Usha left his car at the airport, the kidnapper picked a new location, leaving the family unsure if their plans could be intercepted by the police. The kidnapper then contacted the family, instructing the father to meet him at City Hall. Upon Usha's arrival at City Hall, the kidnapper changed the ransom money drop location to the Daehan Theater. The Daehan Theater is a historic movie theater in Seoul, which is known as a famous landmark. This theater was known for showing international films, especially older films, but in 1991, the theater was at an all-time low for customers. Over time, it had fallen into disrepair, people stopped going to see old classic films, and it was due for a renovation. The kidnapper may have chosen this theater as a way to move away from the busyness of the airport so that it would be more difficult to hide undercover cops in plain sight. The kidnapper's calls were able to be traced to a general location, but he only used public payphones and never was at the location where the police were able to arrive. However, this time, his call was traced back to a public payphone at Chungmuro Station, which is a large transfer station between the orange and blue subway lines in Seoul. It's also known as the Movie District. 
A side note, and then we'll return to the events at hand. Chungmuro is known as the movie district because in the 1960s, Korean film companies started opening up businesses in this new up-and-coming area. Think of this as like Korea's Hollywood. So during this time, it saw exponential growth. They saw like camera stores, photo studios, printing businesses. Everything had to do with like cinema and fame. Aspiring actors, directors, writers, anyone who wanted to break into the film industry was gathering in this area. They knew that this was the place to be to make it big in Korean film. So this area turned into the epicenter for film in Korea. It also boasted the largest cinema complex in Korea. Specifically why this time period had such amazing growth for cinema and why it's known as the golden age for Korean cinema is that this was a time between President Lee Sung-man and Park Jung-hee. The country had a very brief respite from pretty extreme censorship. So films like domestic horror, dramas, and romances were being made with pretty daring and unique storylines. One of the most daring films made at this time was Kim Ki-young's The Housemaid and Yoo Hyung-mok's Obatan or Stray Bullet. The Housemaid was a domestic horror film and Obatan was a historic tragedy. Both are still considered Korea's best films ever made. If you didn't know this about me, I almost studied film in university before I switched to criminology and found my true interest. So I would be more than willing to do movie nights for any of these films or any films about any of the cases I've covered because there are a lot of films made about these true crime cases. When the 1970s came around, censorship was incredibly strict once again and films had to support the government's message. For about a decade, South Korea was known to have the most restrictive code of film censorship than any other country in the world besides that of North Korea and some communist countries. It wasn't until 1980 that censorship was relaxed. Korean tables or families that own large companies like Samsung, Lotte, or LG stopped investing in cinema when the 90s came around, and this is known as the time Chungmuro fell. All of these cinema companies were selling out to larger companies and moving to Gangnam, which to this day is the wealthiest place in Seoul. Of course, I'm devastated that the Daehan Theater was demolished in the year 2000 and was rebuilt as a modern building. So back at the Daehan Theater... Ushil arrived like he was instructed. He received another call telling him to park across from a bakery called Taegukdang, which is a famous bakery that's still there to this day. The kidnapper specifically told him to go park his car, go into the bakery, sit down and have a drink. But before he could even leave the car, he got another call clarifying that the bakery was closed. So the kidnapper was within the area, close enough to see that the bakery was closed. So the plan was now changed. He wanted Ushil to go to a nearby chicken restaurant and eat there. While Ushil was parking and going to the restaurant, another call was made, but to the stepmother who is at their apartment. The kidnapper said bluntly, Someone is wandering in the area right now. Didn't I tell you not to contact the police? Are you going to try to catch me still? But the stepmother denied that there were police in the area. The police had been taking precautions by changing civilian cars often, wearing street clothes, changing officers even, not lingering in the area, but they did trail behind Ushil's car in a typical civilian car on the way there. However, right before this call was made, two men had approached the car and checked if the doors were unlocked, but they ultimately were just determined to be petty thieves checking for cars to steal. The money wasn't taken and the kidnapper may have seen these officers in the parking lot arrest the thieves. 
Sun Young denied contacting the authorities as the kidnapper did not call her bluff, indicating that he may not have been aware of the police's involvement up to this point. She actually didn't even know the police's plan at the parking lot and told the kidnapper if he saw her husband with someone else. It was because Ushul was scared, so he asked his little brother to follow him in his car so that he knew he would be okay and that they would get Hyungo. The kidnapper continued to question her about the police's plan, but she says she almost admitted to involving the police and having them at her house, but she continued to deny it again and again, stating that they hadn't called the police. The phone call ended there, and it was unclear whether or not the kidnapper knew what was really happening. It's possible that he was simply very cautious. Alternatively, if he was aware, it's possible that he still believed he could just evade the police because he was smarter than them. But I believe that this call was the same exact motive as him calling pretending to be the detective. He wanted to see if they would stumble and admit the police's plan or involvement because he didn't know if the family had involved police. He ended his phone call by telling her, if the police intervene, you'll never see Hyungo again. The police arrested the two thieves when they approached the car, assuming that these were the kidnapper, which led to them leaving the scene of the crime. However, we know now that the kidnapper was not one of the arrested individuals. The kidnapper was within the area at least 30 minutes prior, could have still been nearby, and they missed him. When the kidnapper called Ushil to return to Gimpo Airport, he got another call telling him to go to the Kyobo building in Sejong. I don't want to go on too many side stories about famous locations, but Kyobo Mungo at Gwanghamun Station is the largest bookstore in Korea. He told Ushil to park there and leave the car. Sun Young had also followed with the police and daringly went and hid outside at an area that she had a vantage point to see the car. It's incredibly late at night now and into the early hours of February 1st. Sun Young witnessed a man cautiously approach the area. Although he appeared to be in his late 20s or early 30s, which was younger than the estimated age of the voice, but it was still within the appropriate range. When Sun Young attempted to alert the police, they were hesitant to intervene as they didn't want to be detected. The man was scared by something or sensed something was wrong and fled the scene, and his whereabouts were unknown because he wasn't followed. The kidnapper then called Ushil again, stating that picking up the money in person would be too difficult, and he had arranged an easier method for them. They could send him the money through a bank transfer. You're probably wondering what I wondered as well. How can he hide his identity if they transfer the money to his bank account? Well, prior to 1993 in South Korea, identification was not needed to open a bank account. You filled out paperwork and opened the bank account just with self-reported information. There was no verification. This time, the kidnapper wanted Sun Young to be the one who received the calls. He told Sun Young to go to a nearby bus stop and that she would see a note for her. Sun Young did this, and at the bus stop, she found a note posted on top of a trash can. The first of these notes just gave her directions to find the next note. Phrases such as go left or turn around were scribbled on pieces of paper. Some of these notes were scanned and are available to see online, but I mean it when I say that they are very difficult to read. Of course, reading cursive in a non-native language is difficult, so I asked over a dozen native Korean speakers to decipher some of the cursive or help me find a transcription of what it said, and some of them were just lost to time. Nobody could read at least two of the notes. I wonder how Sun Young felt when reading such scribbled notes, panicking to find Hyungo, her son, and also not being able to easily read the notes. Reading the note could determine whether or not she got Hyungo back, but she ultimately did find the last note, which detailed two bank account numbers. 
One account number was for Hanul Bank and one was for Sangup Bank. Each bank account was to receive 20 million won for a total of 40 million won. There was no reason for him to lower the amount demanded, but perhaps there was a bank transfer limit and he wanted to move the money quickly. This amount was equivalent to 100 million won today or 75,000 US dollars. This is less than half of what he initially asked for. Neither of the bank accounts led back to a real identity. The Hanul account was under a fake name Yoon Jung Soo, and the Sangup account was under the fake name Kim Joo Sun. Without CCTV in either of the banks, it wasn't possible to know what he truly looked like yet. The police told the family not to deposit into both of the bank accounts. They said only deposit money into the Hanul bank account, and they would go to the Hanul bank computer center and check for activity on the account. The 20 million won deposit was made a week after Hyungo's kidnapping on February 4th, but the family didn't receive any communication or see any activity on their account for several days. It wasn't until February 13th, 16 days after Hyungo's abduction, that they got a call telling Ushil to prepare a bag of 50 million won in cash, returning to wanting the full 70 million. They were complying with every demand, but the kidnapper was always one step ahead. The kidnapper said, you don't care about your child. Are you in no hurry to get your son? You want Hyungo to die, don't you? Go to Seoul Bridge on Highway 88. There is a steel box underneath the bridge. There is a note under a stone. Please proceed understanding that this is your last chance. When they went to the bridge, the note had only one last destination, Yanghua Bridge. Ushil prepared the ransom money, but at the suggestion of the detectives, only a thin layer on the top was real money. The bottom of the bag was filled with fake cash and blank paper. He went to Yanghua Bridge. Yanghua Bridge is about 20 minutes from Seoul Bridge along Highway 88. This was the last chance to exchange the money and get Hyungo back so the police kept their distance. They couldn't be spotted and ruin this opportunity. If he had eyes on the police and the family, they had to comply for the safety of Hyungo. The police arranged an ambush near the exits of the area and waited until 10.15 that night, hoping to catch the criminal. However, they anticipated the criminal to come on foot or park their car, but instead, a car rushed down the road under the bridge and only slowed down next to the bag of money as a person in the passenger seat quickly reached out of the car and grabbed the bag. They drove away quickly, leaving the police scrambling to communicate over radio. Nobody was able to see the license plate number, and the make of the car was common enough that they couldn't follow it once it went back to the bridge. They weren't prepared for a car chase either, so the criminal just got away. There was nowhere on either side of the road to pull over, and no one had eyes on the car when it picked up the money. So they were only left to assume that the car slowed down and someone grabbed the money because the car never stopped. I can't even fathom the anger Hyungo's family felt after being told that the money was taken and the criminal got away and there was no sign of their son. A final call was received. The last call. He said, There's a lot of fake money mixed in here. I know now that you don't want Hyano back, and I'm thankful that you didn't call the police. The call ended. The criminal's voice was never heard again, but his words lingered in their minds indefinitely. On February 19th, a man visited a branch of the Sangup Bank and attempted to withdraw money from the two bank accounts. However, when the bank teller told the man his account had a hold on it, he ran away from the building. There was no CCTV in the bank as well, and no fingerprints were able to be found on anything he touched. In fact, no fingerprints were collected the entire case, including on the notes he left. The police neglected to put a note on the bank account that told the teller that if someone tried to access it, that they should contact the police. Instead, there was just a general note on the account that said police were involved, which prompted the teller to notify the person who came in that it was just an issue with the account. 
The teller was able to create a police sketch of the man's face for the media to show alongside the audio from the recorded phone calls, but no one was able to recognize the voice or the face. They did, however, get thousands of fake calls and false reports of seeing him here and seeing him there, seeing the man with Hiano on the beach, hearing this man and their family, but none of them went anywhere. There are so many unanswered questions at the end of this. Some of them can be answered, but not all of them. Let's try to answer what we can. Well, first, the voice analysis. According to audio analysis, which was the largest evidence available in this case, criminal psychologists concluded that it was possible that this man was not working alone. Based on the facts of the case, they believed that there were two to three criminals working together to orchestrate the kidnapping and ransom collection. On the phone, the man never referred to himself as me or I. It was always we or us, which in English we use the royal we. This is not a part of the Korean language, so it was clear that this man was referring to him and his accomplices. If you recall, the kidnapper was somehow able to monitor the movements of Hyungo's father when delivering the ransom and also the stepmother at home, while still being able to place multiple notes at different locations. The car driving to pick up the money also had a driver and a passenger who picked up the money. A less compelling evidence but produced by the criminal psychologist is that the man seen at the bank was determined to be in his late 20s, maybe like 26 years old, but the man who was on the phone was clearly in his mid to late 30s with a very thick soul accent and using kind of older terms. He used a lot of technical terms when referring to the airport and the terminals, so they believed either he was someone who had a higher level of education or potentially worked at the airport or visited airports often. They also believed that this was a man with a high school education or higher because when he used Konglish words in his sentences, he spoke with a very clear American accent. The man on the phone often used the phrase gajaguyo, which means let's go, but in an explanatory, honorific way, which is like the way you'd speak to your boss or your higher up. He spoke to the family as if they were above him in status, perhaps as a way to get them to comply or perhaps out of habit. Now, this doesn't mean that the man couldn't be 26 years old with just an old soul, but too much surrounding the case implicated that there was more than one man. Some speculation is that the petty criminals who attempted to steal the money out of the car were indeed accomplices to the kidnapper, who were able to trick the police into believing that they were merely opportunity criminals passing through the parking lot. Could they have been the kidnappers in the grasp of the police and they were let go? Hengo's father, Shil, said he heard the man's voice so often that he felt he could catch the criminal merely by hearing the voice in public. Then there's the question, why was Hengo's family targeted? Apgujang is a ward within Gangnam District known for being the wealthiest district in South Korea, the subject of the famous Gangnam-style song and a filming location for many K-dramas. Gangnam and Apgujang specifically house some of the most elite and affluent families in South Korea. Apgujang is a destination for purchasing luxury goods, visiting the best cosmetic surgeons in the country, and fine dining. Apgujang is known for its extremely expensive real estate and mega apartment buildings catering to Korea's elite. Lee Hyungo's father, Yoo Shil, was the owner of a successful company. Although he wasn't a famous public figure, their family was very wealthy. Hyungo's father and mother divorced a few years prior, and Yoo Shil remarried Sun Young, their stepmother, and the mother was not involved in the search for Hyungo. 
While the mother was not suspected in the case, the birth mother's brother was suspected. And the reason for this is incredibly suspicious, so please try to follow along. Yushil married Hyungo's birth mother before he was born, around 1980. But they divorced around 1988 or 1989. When Ushil and the birth mother divorced, the birth mother's little brother helped her in the divorce to get alimony. She was granted the alimony, and you'll never guess how much, she was granted 70 million won in alimony, the exact amount asked for by the kidnapper. Interestingly, when she received the settlement, she didn't share any of the alimony with her relatives who had helped her, particularly her little brother, who played a crucial role in securing the alimony. This could lead to a grudge, and the plan could have been to hold Hino hostage for ransom and suspect that the birth mother might have returned to help supply the ransom money, therefore hurting both the father and the mother. But this ended up not being the case. The birth mother didn't get involved in the police investigation. As part of the investigation into the kidnapping case, Hino's uncle was brought in for questioning. During the process, authorities noticed that there was a resemblance between his voice and that of the kidnapper's calls. The Korean FBI used a voice print method, which compares two recorded voice samples to determine if the voices matched. The uncle's voice had a 92% match to the kidnapper. And this isn't like a fingerprint where you can get 100%. It's almost impossible to get 100% match. And the uncle often took domestic flights at Gimpo Airport, including during the times that the father was asked to drop off the money. The circumstances seemed too suspicious to be a mere coincidence. Don't you agree? But the police determined that the uncle did have an alibi for some of the times that the phone calls were made and he couldn't have been at payphones used during those times. His alibi was that he was in Yeongju at the time of Hyeno's kidnapping. He even had a toll booth receipt to prove that he was not there and that he'd taken a picture with the owner of a bed and breakfast that he was staying at. The first phone call was traced to places in Seoul, so it isn't likely, right? Except, it's possible to forward phone calls. The uncle even had a degree in telecommunication. He would have known how to forward a phone call. The uncle was unemployed in a poor financial situation after losing his job. He was 29 years old, but he didn't match the visual drawing created by the bank teller. But keep in mind, there was more than one accomplice. The 1990s were a time of great panic towards child abductions as well. Hyungo had been told by his parents at school about stranger danger. He knew his address and home numbers by heart. He'd known not to talk to or follow strangers. Even his friends noted the odd man near the park when they left. Kids were aware of the dangers of strangers. It wasn't likely Hyungo would have left without force with anyone except a family member. But the uncle was let go, and the case returned to square one. The primary question remains, what happened to Hyungo? On March 13, 1991, 44 days since Hyungo went missing, the case was cold and no new information had been found. At 2 p.m., residents in Jamshil Seoul reported a road sewer drain that was blocked. It wasn't draining properly and water was collecting in the road. When the city workers came to clear the debris, they discovered a small corpse stuck in the cement sewer tube. After a police autopsy, the body was determined to be Yi Hyung-ho. It was badly decayed from being in the wet, frozen sewer, but was able to be identified nonetheless. He was wearing the same clothes that he was when he went missing, except the boy was wearing a brand new pair of Adidas, a pair of shoes that did not belong to Hyung-ho or his friends. Hyungo's eyes, nose, and mouth were covered tightly in cloth, and his hands and feet were bound with nylon ropes. His head also had an injury consistent with blunt force trauma. 
although his cause of death was determined to be suffocation. The forensic team worked hard to determine the time of death and discovered that the food in his stomach was the same food he had eaten with his friends before going to the playground. hyung was killed within hours of being kidnapped. The entire negotiation for hyung life happened while the kidnapper knew hyung was already dead. According to criminal psychologists, it's unlikely that this man or team had kidnapped anyone prior to this, as the death of hyung seemed unintentional. Hyung-ho was not strangled to death. He suffocated in his bindings. The cloth over his head, tied with ropes and tape, covered his nose and his mouth, but didn't seem to be intentional to suffocate the child. Seemed like a way to gag and blind the child from seeing where they were going. His death was accidental. There was little to no chance of saving Hyung-ho's life for the short time he was taken, but the Gangnam police station was responsible for capturing the criminal, yet they missed several crucial opportunities to do so. There were three instances during the investigation where the criminal could have been easily apprehended. As a result, the criminal went free. The first opportunity was on February 1st. Sun Young witnessed a suspicious man approaching the car garage, which was waiting for the kidnapper to collect the ransom money. It is likely that this man was one of the kidnappers. However, when the police failed to listen to Sun Young's report about the suspicious man, the man disappeared. They even received a call later saying he didn't feel safe picking the money up in person which confirmed that that was the man. Even if that wasn't the man, they could have at least questioned him. The second opportunity was the 13th, when the kidnapper actually obtained the money placed under the bridge. The police should have thought about the ways the kidnapper could have obtained the money. As well, they should have kept an eye on the area, because the reports, it appears that the lookout wasn't even in the correct area, and that's why they didn't even see the car slow down to pick up the money. They didn't even have eyes on the money. It seems like a rookie mistake made by the entire Gangnam police force. A police chase should have ensued following that car. Helicopters should have been deployed as well. As far as they were aware, at this point, a child's life was at risk. Finally, on the 19th, when the man attempted to withdraw the 20 million won from the bank account at Sangup Bank, the bank teller only read that there was an alert on the account and notified the man that he couldn't withdraw the money, which tipped him off that the police had known about the account. He was able to get away because the police should have placed instructions on the account that told the teller if anyone tried to withdraw money that the police should be notified. The exact same measures as if they were in an active robbery situation. The police should have been immediately called. I do not believe the police should be forgiven for the blunders as they failed multiple times to apprehend a man who continually arranged in-person meetings. Hyung-ho will never get justice because of the mistakes of the detectives involved. This man could have gone on to hurt more children and families. The only relief we have is knowing that a crime like this would be incredibly difficult to perform today. Since this, Korea has become the land of CCTV, with cameras on almost every city street. Of course, child abductions and murders still do happen in Korea, but the methods that were used in this case would have gotten him caught easily today. For instance, in Korea, to access most accounts, banks, government websites, even sometimes just apps, you have to verify your identity. Koreans have a system called IPIN, and foreigners can use various methods like verifying with your cell phone provider or through your bank account. I find the easiest ways to use an app called Pass, which was popular when you had to scan into grocery stores during COVID lockdown, although I don't use it for that purpose anymore. It still helps me create accounts like I use it just last week at the PC Bong. Regrettably, the statute of limitations has expired, leaving this case unsolved for the sake of justice. 
This happened in 2006, meaning that even if the perpetrator were discovered, it would be complicated to bring them to justice. It's highly challenging to prosecute a crime that has passed the statute of limitations. As of 2011, criminal psychologists are still creating new hypotheses about this case, trying to reconstruct the events and determine how it exactly happened. The most recent hypothesis is that there were not two, but three culprits. One who called, one who went to pick up the money, and one who organized everything. The man who made the phone calls may be acquainted with the family as they spoke respectfully, calmly, and had knowledge about the family. According to the banker's testimony, the person she saw and the person on the phone are potentially different people. She said the voice didn't match and that the person she saw had a very long face with a slight accent. This was different from the person on the phone that was incredibly clear as if they were an announcer or a news host. Finally, during many of the calls, the speaker paused after hearing Ushil or Sun Young's answers as if they were waiting to be told what to say. This could be a pause for them to consider carefully what to say next, but criminal psychologists believe that these answers sound as if they were just reading them. Multiple times when speaking, the culprit says that he is not alone. He says we, referring to himself, which again, can only mean that there's more than one person. The uncle's alibi could easily be broken if there are multiple people involved. All of the phone calls were made on weekdays, suggesting that the caller could possibly be self-employed, unemployed, or work in an unsupervised position, meaning that their family's not around them on weekdays, but on the weekend, they're busy and can't make calls. Unfortunately, the kidnappers and killers have gotten away with this crime. Youngo's father once said, If I meet the criminal, I want to ask him why he killed my son rather than punish me. Ushil suffered greatly from the loss of his youngest son. Hyungo did have an older brother who also mourned him greatly. Ushil became dependent on alcohol and his business failed because of his grief. Fortunately, Ushil was able to restart his business and is doing well as far as 2022. The criminals eluded justice and unfortunately, due to the mistakes by the hands of the police, justice will never be served. Collectively, we feel grief and anger when children are hurt in crimes. Yet, we must remember that justice, even if delayed, can still come. There are many more forms of justice than through the police arresting the criminals. We can only hope that karma is real. We must also remember Hyungo and the children like him who are hurt because of the mistakes adults make or use them as pawns. It isn't too far of a stretch to say that we must care about children everywhere in the world and protect children from unimaginable hardships. Of course, I'm also referring to the current conflict in Palestine. Regardless of location, children deserve a future free from harm. As I've said many times before, we must take on the shared responsibility of protecting the most vulnerable people in our communities. As always, thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. I hope you enjoyed today's episode topic. If you would like to vote on future episode topics, join Korean True Crime's Patreon today. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. See you next time.